Well, church, let me ask you two questions. Two questions this morning. First, does God speak clearly how we should think and act toward the government? Does God speak clearly how we should think and act toward the government? Second, is our relation to the government important for the Christian life? The answer to both of those questions is emphatically yes. Yes, God does speak clearly how we should think and act toward the government. And yes, this is important for the Christian life. You say, why would you say that that is an important part of the Christian life? When we know that there's many other things that we are to be growing in and learning about in the Christian life. Well, I would point to a couple of things. I would point to the book of Romans, perhaps the Apostle Paul's greatest letter that he ever wrote. And in the first 11 chapters, how he lays out the the plan of redemption and all of its powerful implications for the church. Then in chapter 12, Paul transitions to talking about practical Christian living and how this plays out in our daily lives. What does it look like to be a Christian and so forth? And one of the major issues that Paul addresses right there, chapter 13, is our relationship to the government. Yes, it matters greatly to God how we think and act toward the government. And then we go and we hear from the other great apostle, the apostle Peter. He does the same thing in his letter. He starts by talking about these these great things of redemption that you and I get to experience. He talks about our relationships one with another. And then guess what area he talks about first when he talks about our relationship to the world? He talks about our relationship with the government. The apostles saw our relationship to government as vital, and so should we. God made the government a key part of life. He intended it to be that way, and he knows that it is crucial that you and I develop a biblical view about the government, that you and I would see it not as something that's kind of optional if we feel like being involved with it or having a biblical view, but this is actually essential for discipleship. Just like we would talk about prayer, just like we would talk about marriage or family or outreach, so too this is part of discipleship. And God wants us to live this out well. Now, we know this is not easy, is it? It's not easy in the early church as they lived under the authority of the Roman Empire, a foreign army who invaded and took over their land and who ruled with an iron fist and who had values much different than the church. It was hard for them, wasn't it? It's hard for us in our day. We're blessed to have national sovereignty, but our government increasingly marginalizes and even now sometimes opposes the church. The government has grown exponentially in size the last few generations, and and people, how they see it as so important. But today's passage is going to be helpful for us as we see that God does speak clearly about our relationship to the government and why it matters so much. 
So please, I hope that our hearts are open this morning to hear from God's Word. It challenges us, it stretches us, and it will use us to be better witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ if we take these truths into our hearts. So let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter as we're going to continue our series here this morning. As I said, the focus of Peter so far has been on kind of our relationships one with another, church relationships. But now he's going to change gears and talk about our relationship to the outside world with non-Christians. And he's going to do this all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. So this is a really significant part of the letter. Paul's going to talk about in these following pages here about our relationship between the citizens and the government, between masters and slaves, which was very common there in the Roman Empire, and also the relationship between husbands and wives. In each instance, the issue is how do Christians relate to people who are non-Christians, particularly when you might suffer as a result of your faith. So before he gets into all that, though, into getting into the government, Peter talks about the need for you and I to have honorable conduct in all of life. Honorable conduct in all of life. Let's read verses 11 and 12 together, because this is kind of his theme that he's going to use and run it all the way through into chapter 4. So let's read verses 11 and 12 together. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter begins by reminding them that they are exiles. Remember how he began the letter, very first verse, he told them that we are exiles, not political exiles or physical exiles, but we're spiritual exiles. You and I, we're waiting for our new heaven and new earth to arrive. We we don't have a home in an ultimate sense right now. We are waiting for Christ to return. This sinful fallen world is not our true home. We are waiting for this. So the question is, okay, if we are spiritual exiles, then how are we supposed to live honorably as exiles in this fallen world? So Peter points out in verse 11, kind of one characteristic he says is that we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What Peter's getting at there is that uh, the, the, the passions of the flesh, not talking about your flesh and bones, talking about our sinful nature, the things that are inside of us, right? The things that we crave, whether it's anger or lust or pride or envy or uh, slander and so on, those passions are real and they wage war against our soul. And they can inflict major damage in our lives just like an enemy that wants to conquer. James 4.1 says these words, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Galatians 5.16 and 17 says, I say, walk by the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and you will not, satisfy, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Peter is very emphatic here, right? We are to abstain from the desires of the flesh. We are to abstain from those influences that tempt us. Now, obviously, we need to take this seriously, right? We need to know that it's not easy, so therefore, we have to fight it, right? We have to fight this. Jesus kind of says the same thing when he was talking about things that lead us in temptation. Remember how Jesus said, you know what? You might need to chop off some body parts. Remember those words? Now, of course, we understand that he was talking hyperbolically, that we're not literally supposed to do those things. This doesn't even really solve the problem. The problem is our heart. But the issue that we need to get back to is he was making a very powerful point. We need to take seriously abstaining from the passions of the flesh. If we don't do this, we will experience a a, a slow drift from God or perhaps just a sudden collapse. Let me ask you something. Are you fighting the desires of the flesh in your life right now? Is it something you can honestly say, you know, I am really fighting this in my life. I've not just sort of thrown up a flag and just said, this is the way I am. Or I'm not going to make any progress anymore in this. But no, I know what God's word says. and I'm going to trust and obey what his word says, right? And take this seriously. Friend, strong Christians will take this seriously. I have never met in my 20 plus years, being at seminary, being in different churches and so forth, I have never met a strong Christian who is lax about sin. Never. Because you can't. You can't take it serious. You cannot be a strong Christian if we're lackadaisical about the passions of the flesh. Someone who is a strong Christian recognizes not that you're Superman and that you have no sinful temptations. You recognize your weaknesses. And you do something about it. You start getting on your face and start praying, Lord, lead me away from temptation. Or whatever that struggle is, you might start feeding your mind, meditating on scriptures so that you can fight it when the temptation comes. Or you might have some people that you're accountable to that can uh, build you up and also ask you tough questions. You're going to put safeguards in your life so that when that moment of weakness comes, it's a lot harder to stumble and fall. You're going to monitor what you listen and watch and not fill your mind with garbage. God wants us to abstain from sinful desires. That's part of what he's calling us to. That's part of, I think, living honorably. And in verse 12, again, he says that we're to live honorably. We're to obey God in all areas. Like I said, he's going to talk about some of these areas in future chapters about Uh, the government and so forth, and marriage and everything. But notice he says, this is fascinating, Peter says that Gentiles will speak against you as evildoers. Now, Peter's writing to predominantly Gentile Christian audience here, so when he says Gentiles, he's talking about non-Christians here, a fallen world. He says, look, no matter what you do, 
you're going to have people that accuse you. They're going to say that you are evildoers. That's kind of a disappointing thought, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's a bummer to know that you know, we all like to have approval and so forth, but you will have this no matter how you live as a Christian. You will have people who will say things about you that is not true. We have to be ready for that. In the early church, they had some crazy accusations flung at them. They were accused of being atheists. Atheists. These devout monotheists, believers in Christ, were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't worship all the pagan gods that were all over the place. They were called atheists. They were called, uh, they were accused of practicing incest because they would say they have a love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were called cannibals because at the Lord's Supper we talk about the body and blood of Christ. Isn't that crazy? But there's always some kind of accusation going on, isn't there? Today we have accusations as well. I think for the last decade or so, the most common accusation that has been levied against Christians is that we are intolerant. We are intolerant. Now, if you go and you actually take the time to look up the word tolerance in the Webster's Dictionary, it says this, sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with one's own. So basically, tolerance means that you and I can agree respectfully. We can agree to disagree, right? Now, in my experience in the Christian world, that's not a big problem. I think Christians are incredibly tolerant, but something has gone on here. The word tolerant has been twisted to mean that if you disagree, if you disagree with whatever the progressive cultural elites are saying at the time, then you are intolerant if you differ. So basically, the word tolerance has been redefined to apply, and then applied to us when, in fact, they are the very ones who are intolerant because they want to silence those who differ with them. That's not tolerance at all. Now, for me, I find that frustrating. <laughs> but Peter says, you know what? This is par for the course, right? There will always be something. However, if we will fight sinful desires and conduct ourselves honorably, then some people, not all people, but some people will see our good deeds and be drawn to God. Amen? Amen. And that's why we keep plugging along, right? Amen. Knowing that God's using it somehow. And Peter's really echoing what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus said? Let your light shine before others so that they may hear your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter specifically says that our conduct should lead others to glorify God on the day of visitation. I think that's basically talking about the return of Christ. So what he's getting at here is that if you and I will live this out, live honorably, abstain from the passions of the flesh, that on that judgment day, there will be people in our lives who will give glory to God because they saw the way that you and I lived, they were drawn to that, and they became Christians, and they will glorify God. Amen? So don't give up. 
Don't give up. Your work is not in vain. Your witness is not in vain. The things that you are saying and praying and doing are not in vain. People will see it. You may not see it in your lifetime, but there will be people there. We can trust God for that. His word declares that we can believe it. So that was, again, this is his theme here for the whole section, all the way through into chapter 4 about honorable conduct. Now Peter puts the rubber to the road here. And he applies this to our relationship to the government. Everybody still hanging in there so far? So he says we are to honor the government. Let's read verses 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter starts off by saying we are to be subject to every institution. He's talking here about the various forms of government. He says that they were supposed to be subject to the emperor and also to the lower forms of government. He says the word governor, but it really was a broad term, could describe all kinds of various, you know, offices there that were under the emperor, who were under his authority. And so we are to submit to the lower form of, forms of government, not just to say the lead person. Notice Peter says that we should be subject to the government for what reason? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. What does that mean? Well, God establishes government. Indeed, God establishes all governments. Jesus affirmed this in his conversation with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who stood before uh, Jesus, right? And this was the the, the time of his crucifixion trial and so forth, right before he was to be sentenced to death by Pilate. In John 19.10, Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above came from God Romans 13 1 you might want to flip over to Romans 13 we're going to look at a few verses here but in Romans 13 1 Paul echoes this he says let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God God rules over all governments. The word instituted there means put in place or arranged. God does not um, rule over governments in kind of this distant or aloof manner. Rather, he establishes these governments. Now, from a human perspective, a government might come into power because of a vote, a revolution, a king's uh, edict, or whatever it might be. But from a divine perspective, God established that government. And since God has established all governments, we are to be subject to God and to that government. In both Romans and 1 Peter, there, it, notice how it says, be subject, be subject. In the Greek there, that talks literally about a soldier who was subject to the orders of a superior officer, right? You're to line up what that superior officer has said. In fact, 
And Peter or Paul in verse 2 of Romans, he says that if you resist the government, you resist God. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And so by submitting to the government, you submit to God. Our obedience reflects our trust in God's sovereignty and glorifies Him. You say, well, what's the government supposed to be doing? Well, their God-given role, as Peter says, is to carry out justice. That is what any government is supposed to be doing, is carrying out justice. He says, they should punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And so God has given the government this power to exercise justice. Go over again to Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Do you guys see here that word sword? That's a, a symbolic of how the government has been given the sword by God to carry out justice, whether small offenses all the way to capital punishment. And so the government is supposed to execute justice on evildoers. And when they do that, they are doing a good for society because they're protecting innocent citizens, right? Protecting their property. And so justice isn't just kind of a negative thing. It's a positive thing. It's promoting the good of that society. Justice is positive. So as bad as governments can be, Bad as governments can be, they do restrain evil and promote justice. And so we should praise God for that. In verse 15, Peter adds that this is the will of God to submit to the government. Again, it's very important in the Christian life. And Peter also adds that if we will do this, that it silences the ignorance of foolish people. You say, how would our, how would our obedience to the government silence foolish people? I think what he's getting at here is that when you and I, when we do that, people will not be accusing the church of disobeying the government. And I think there's just a natural inclination within people that we should honor our leaders. But if you and I are going around and disobeying them, then they're going to look and turn to the church and say, look, if you won't do something that's so common and so basic, why should we listen to you about Christ? You see what I'm saying? It kind of hurts our witness. It's like if we are very lazy and then we try to tell someone about Christ, they're going to be focused on the fact that we're lazy at work, right? Or if we go off and we're gossiping about our coworkers and so forth, and then we try to turn around and talk about the gospel, they're going to say, why are you a gossip? And now you're telling me about Christ. They're going to see something that doesn't match. But if we do, it silences those who make these accusations. Verse 16, Peter says something very interesting. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is fascinating. Our obedience to the government is done out of freedom. It's done out of freedom. We're not weak 
or servile. We're not passively having to do this, but we actually voluntarily choose to submit to the government. Do you see the difference there? Because in, in reality, ultimately, we're not submitting to the government. We are submitting to God, right? As servants of God, they're in a sense kind of even out of the picture. It's really about submitting to God who has put them in that place of authority. And that's kind of the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? Only servants of God are truly free to, to do what is right. And to do what is right from what Peter is saying here is to honor the government. In verse 17, Peter closes this section with four bullet-like bullet point statements. If you read with me, it says here, the first thing we're supposed to do is we're supposed to honor everyone. We're supposed to honor everyone. Those are powerful words, aren't they? God wants us not only to obey outwardly, because that, that's something we all could be tempted to do, right? I obey the laws of the land, but boy, my heart... <laughs> I'm not too happy about it. I'm going to grumble and complain like that old story of the little boy, you know, who's standing up, disobeying, and his mother tells him to sit down, and he actually will finally do it. He sits down. He says to his mother, you know, I'm sitting down outwardly, but in my heart, I'm standing up. And we might do it with the laws of the land, right? We might, okay, I'll go along with them, but I have no honor toward my government. And I'm going to always maliciously comment and I'm always going to maliciously make things, derogatory statements about the government, but I'm going along. That's not what Peter's talking about, is he? He's talking about an inward sense of honor to those who've been placed above us. Going back to Romans 13, after mentioning taxes, I mean, Paul's talking about taxes. Are you listening to me here? He's talking about taxes. He gives a summary statement. It says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's not even something that's optional. We have an obligation to give it. And not just the ones we like, but to everyone. Peter says, secondly, we're to love the brotherhood. He's talked already about loving the brothers. And I wonder if in this context, if he might be talking about Christians who are serving in, in, in government, that we're to love them as well, since that's kind of the context here. Third, he says, we're to fear God. We're to fear God. At the root of our desire to act honorably toward our leaders is the fear of God. You know, I get it. I get it. If it was not for the fear of God, I understand, I can totally understand why people would want to tee off on the government and talk about this leader and that leader and so forth and always be listening to things where they're getting upset about it. I understand that because human leaders fall in so many miserable ways, but we would do the same. But it's the fear of God that should constrain us, amen, to act honorably toward our leaders. And then fourth, Paul closes, I mean, Peter closes up by saying, honor the emperor. Wow. Let me tell you a few things about the emperors of Peter's days, just so you get the power of what he just said. They lived incredibly in general. They, they lived incredibly extravagant, debauched lives. They regarded themselves as divine beings needing worship. They 
attended gladiator games where people and animals were mangled and killed by the thousands. They levied excessive taxes, and they made sure you paid your taxes. Not a lot of grace with them. In fact, if you didn't pay your taxes, they would come and kill you or burn your house down. Right? Not very nice. The emperor of Peter's day was a man named Nero. He persecuted the church very brutally. So much so that at his party, sometimes he would light Christians on fire for entertainment's sake. In 64 AD, there's the famous fire that Nero perhaps started. And who did he blame as the scapegoat? Christians. Peter himself would ultimately lose his life under Nero's reign. Friends, living under the government of the Roman Empire was much harder than living under the United States leadership. They were foreign invaders. They ruled with an iron fist, and their values were greatly different. Yet Peter told them to honor the emperor. That's remarkable, isn't it? So in closing, let me make three points of applications for all of us here today. First, we should honor our government. I know that what I'm saying is countercultural. I know that. In our country, it's become a national pastime to talk bad about the government. But I don't think it honors God to continually malign the government, whether it's the things that we're saying in our conversations, things we're posting on social media. We heard our testimony as Christians, and I think we kind of set a bad example for our children who are coming behind us when they hear us talking about the politicians, they hear us talking about the military, hear us talking about the police, and so forth. Now, I, I'm the first to say that we, there, is, there is a real place for uh, differences and expressing your differences with the government, right? Real clear assessments and a, and, a, and a voicing of your views. But we can do it in a respectful and honorable way, can't we? That's the difference. That's the difference. And I think our nation is in desperate need of citizens who are thankful for the government and who actually honor it even when they have profound differences. So let me challenge you this morning to think about ways you can grow in honoring the leaders of our land, whether it's the first responders, whether it's the military, whether it's our politicians. Can you imagine if we honored our leaders more and they began to receive a steady stream of emails, letters, gifts, thanking them for their service and good decisions? I guarantee you that they probably received very little praise and a whole lot of criticism. I imagine they might be touched by that. And they might actually be open more to listening to the concerns of Christian citizens. And most importantly, I think they would be more open to the gospel. Because we would stand out. Wait, these are people that might even disagree with me strongly, but they treat me with a sense of, of respect and honor. Not many other people do that. What's going on with this group of people? I'd kind of like to know a little bit more about them. Open door, right, to sharing the hope we have about Jesus Christ. Letting our good deeds shine before others so that they're drawn to God, amen? Showing honor to your leaders I believe, is actually a way of doing that, pointing to Christ 
so that people are drawn to him. Now, I do need to say this. Second point is there is a place for civil disobedience. Submission to the government is not absolute. Our only absolute submission is to God alone. Amen? Amen. So when do we disobey the government? Well, we disobey the government when they call us to disobey Scripture, right? It's very clear and simple. When they ask us to do something that violates Scripture, then we can and should disobey the government. It's not rocket science here, right? And so we see this in Scripture. There's various cases. And the very Peter who wrote these words did this in Acts when the religious leaders, the authorities, they said, you got to stop preaching the gospel, Peter. And what Peter and the apostles tell them? No. They say in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So there is a place for civil disobedience. But that doesn't mean just because we don't like a law or we think it's uh, uh, inconvenient or whatever. That's not what that's about. We should obey the government unless it causes us to violate Scripture. Let me add a footnote to that, though. We are to use the rights that we have to speak up. The Apostle Paul does this several cases where he uses his rights as a Roman citizen to speak up. So God's not asking us to just kind of lay down and be these completely passive citizens. I believe whatever rights you have in whatever country you live in, you should use those. You know, I've done that several times in being a pastor here. I've contacted legal organizations and said, here's a situation. What is your counsel? What do you think about this, right? And I've spoken up. And it's been received. But we have to do it in a way that honors the government. Final point is this. In the midst of all this discussion about the government, we need to know and remember the King of Kings. Amen? Amen? And that is my challenge for everyone here today. Do you know the King of Kings? Do you know him personally? Because you know what? When he came to this earth the first time, his message was that he was establishing the kingdom of God and that this kingdom is going to rule over the hearts and affairs of men, and it is a kingdom centered on justice, grace, and love. This kingdom is going to last forever. All the kingdoms of the world have either passed away or they will pass away, but one day Jesus is going to return, and he's going to culminate his kingdom. He is going to establish a kingdom that will never fade away. He's going to build a new creation. He's going to give us resurrection bodies. He's going to dwell in our midst. He's going to remove all evildoers from his presence. And the door will be closed at that point. But right now, the door is open for you to know the King of Kings. Act today before that door is closed. But we need to enter on the king's terms. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We need to repent. Do you know what repent means? Repent means that we turn from our sin. We recognize that, you know what? We sit on the throne of our hearts, right? We want to be the boss. We want to be the one in control. That's not repentance, is it? Repentance is saying, Lord, I have sinned, and I want you to take over the throne of my heart. I'm going to get off of that throne 
today, and I'm going to let you, Lord, take over. You turn. That is what repentance is about. And then we believe in Christ. We believe that who He claimed to be is true, that He's God in human flesh, that He died on the cross for our sin, that you and I have grieved Him by our sin, but yet He died in our place. That if we ask for forgiveness, He will do that. And He rose from the dead to show His victory over the death that plagues all of humanity. So let me challenge you, let me encourage you, let me invite you to enter the kingdom today. Repent and believe in Christ. I'm going to put a prayer up on the screen here. There's nothing magical about the words, but if you read this and it expresses your heart, I pray that today would be the day you decide, I'm going to get up off of the throne of my heart and let the Lord take over. And I'm going to trust Christ to forgive me of all my sins. And when he returns one day and establishes that kingdom, I'm going to be waiting for him, rejoicing and celebrating, because I have entered into that great kingdom. So please take a moment and read that prayer. It's up on the screen. If that reflects your heart, when we have a moment of prayer in a second, I encourage you to say that in your heart to the Lord in this moment now. And have today be the day of salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We read that from those seminaries. They declared the same truth, that you're the King of kings. We declare it here in Connecticut. Everywhere, Lord, you are the King of kings. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord of lords. Lord, today you have that door of opportunity open to come into your kingdom the kingdom that will never fail, never fade. Lord, I pray today that someone might respond to this invitation and believe in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, we've heard a message today that challenges us. We're thankful for the Word of God that it doesn't just let us sit complacent. Lord, I pray that we would hear these words and be doers of the word today, that we would trust and obey your word. God, we pray that you would help us to make this matter of our relationship to the government a matter of discipleship, that we wouldn't dismiss it, that we wouldn't think it's something optional. This actually matters greatly in our witness to the world, and it's a way of shining our light so that people are drawn to you. Lord, we pray for our leaders. We know Paul tells us to pray for them in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We pray for our leaders. We pray that they might allow us to live quiet, peaceful lives, as he says there. We pray them to come to know you, that there would be just many leaders on the local, state, and national level who come to a true knowledge of who you are. What a difference it would make in this land. 
Lord, we pray for leaders who execute justice. Lord, we pray for unjust laws, and we know there are unjust laws on the books today. We pray that you might overturn them. God, we need grace. It is very hard to know how to honor the government, yet know how to also disobey the government if the need arises. We pray for that, Lord. Pray you would give us grace this morning. And Lord, we do again just look forward to that day when you return and that government is set up that will never fade or fail, that will never be unjust, and all your people cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you. Help us by your grace to be your people to bring you great honor and glory. Help us, Lord, to honor you with all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.